0: Hi folks, welcome to part two of our episodes focusing on LCT 7074 and the restoration to her former 1944 glory. We're joined by Stephen Fisher, who is one of the team working on this incredible project down in Portsmouth. So let's dive right back into discussing conditions on board LCT 7074 for her crew in the build-up to D-Day. Obviously talked about the living conditions there, um, but these guys are in theory going into enemy held territory so they're going to be potentially receiving fire while they're delivering their cargo what sort of defense and weaponry were these guys equipped with
1: not a huge amount the wheelhouse itself was armored um obviously because that's the the most important part of the vessel and the most exposed bit being the only upstanding section of the vessel um there was light armor around the bow just to protect the the ramps um But in the main, very little, uh, because, as I said, these are such functional craft that um, in many ways, damage to the the upper hull isn't going to be significant. It's only if you get damage below the waterline that it would be a problem, um, because, like I said, they're just floating tank decks. Uh, Their armament was also fairly minor. There were two 20mm guns at the back on the wheelhouse for anti-aircraft defence. There was also on the bow uh, a very interesting weapon called the uh, uh, Fast Aerial Mine or FAM for short which basically was a projectile that was fired up a a tube into the air uh, towing behind it a long length of cable The idea of this was if an aircraft made an attack, strafing attack on your landing craft, you would fire these fast aerial mines into the air. The long cable would be caught by the wing of the aircraft Uh, and then attached to the end of this cable was an explosive charge. And as the cable slid along the wing, the charge would come into contact with the wing, detonate and blow the wing off of the, the aircraft. And there were two of these on 7074's bow. And in fact, on almost all landing craft that you see at D-Day, they have these fast aerial mine firing apparatus attached. Uh, There are some records of them being used, but I don't know how successful they were. There is some wartime... literature, which, you know, if it was German, we would call it propaganda, um, that suggests entire squadrons of aircraft were brought down with this invention, but I suspect that's a slight exaggeration. So the armament on board, very basic. The Orlikans were their their best defence. The fast aerial mines were uh, available and fitted. (laughs) I I don't think that they were expected to achieve much. Uh, But yes, very little. Um, their role was uh, not, not to survive themselves so much as to be able to get their men on the beach. That was the prime task of a landing craft and that, that was all that they really needed to do. Many of these landing crafts,
0: although they were built for D-Day, um, if they managed to get one load ashore, then their build cost was worth it. What was 7074's D-Day experience, as it were? So 7074, being in Force L,
1: was the follow-up wave, and Force L was going to land extra men and material on all three of the Commonwealth beaches, Sword, Juno, and Gold. Primarily, they were transporting tanks and vehicles and men of the 22nd Armoured Brigade, which was one of the brigades of the 7th Armoured Division. The idea was that after the first three divisions, one on each beach had gone ashore, this would be the Immediate follow up and the start of the build up of extra units in Normandy. So, the 7th Armour Division was going to be the next division to come ashore. They sailed from Felixstowe area on the 5th of June and met um, just north of the Straits of Dover other elements of Force L that had sailed from the Thames Estuary. And that evening, that overnight, they uh, passed through the straits of dover where they were shelled by some of the long distance guns at calais by the time of the morning of d day uh, at 725 when the landings were occurring on the commonwealth beaches they were south of hastings thereabouts so passing down the coast um, of west of sussex uh, kent and sussex and they were scheduled to arrive off the beaches In the late evening of D Day. And they did, they arrived on time, but the weather had started to turn a little bit. And so the beachmaster ordered that all of the landing craft uh, would have to remain at sea and they would beach in the morning. And so on the morning of the 7th of June, all of these landing craft started to prepare to come ashore. And in a, a huge mass, all of these landing craft tank and landing ships of four cells started to come ashore on primarily juno and gold beaches uh, and 7074 beached at 9:30 in the morning unloaded her tanks but was then driven ashore by the weather and came to a rest on gold jig beach as the tide was receding she was then left high and dry on the the sand and eventually was refloated with the next tide so I think she sailed back to England on the 8th and arrived in Southampton on the 9th of June uh, underwent some repairs and then began working as this uh, shuttle service from the UK over to France with more men and vehicles
0: you've done some incredible research into those that served and obviously those vehicles that departed from the LCT on D plus one. Um, If we sort of have a look at the crew first.
1: It's been very difficult to learn anything more about the crew, unfortunately. We know the names of the two officers. Um, Sub-Lieutenant John Bagot was the commander and he was a uh, trainee solicitor. And his first officer was Lieutenant Philip Stevens. And those are the only names of the crew that we have. Now, the trouble is, um, unlike other uh, service records for destroyers or battleships, um, where service would be recorded in the name of the ship, for landing craft, crew were assigned to a a shore establishment. And the actual identity of the landing craft that they were assigned to is very, very rarely recorded. So as yet, we still haven't been able to trace the names of any of the uh, crew of 7074, none of the the enlisted men, just the two officers. And we would love to be able to find out the names of some of the crew who are on board. Um, But, yeah, it's a bit of a dead end there and it's not easy to find out. So if anyone
0: is able to shed any light on the names of people who were on board, we would certainly love to hear from them. So what sort of age would these officers have been?
1: Um, As we understand it, Sub-Lieutenant John Bagot, the commander, was only 20 years old. Um, So he was a naval volunteer in the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. But yes, obviously... At the start of his career, obviously was promoted from midshipman to sub-lieutenant, um, but, yeah, very young. With the crew, we can't be certain. Usually the coxswain tended to be someone who'd served at sea for a fair bit longer, so they might be a little bit older. Uh, the ratings might easily have been... Uh, newly recruited into the Royal Navy as well, we just don't know. But certainly in the case of the two officers, uh, they were very young. And yes, probably this was Bagot's first command.
0: And what a start. I imagine it would have been D-Day as your first operation. Yes. um, Well, (laughs) to, to be involved in that so early on, having not had the opportunity to
1: practice for more than a couple of weeks, and not having the experience of other actual amphibious operations, then, yes, I can imagine it was uh, quite daunting for a 20-year-old. Well, I know it's certainly not something I could have done at 20.
0: Would he have had much support being part of a flotilla? What sort of size of uh, number of LCTs are we talking about that makes of a flotilla? Uh,
1: so the flotilla had eight landing craft in, and the 17th LCT flotilla was part of two flotillas that made up H squadron. And there were two squadrons of landing craft tank in uh, Force L. And some of those flotillas and squadrons were slightly larger. V squadron, the other squadron, had three flotillas in it. Um, All told, there were just under 50 landing craft tank in Force L. And they sailed in two groups um, for different beaches. So there were a lot of vessels all around that would have been quite easy to to know where you were going from the size of these vast fleets that were descending south. Um, landing craft tank, of course, most of them didn't have wireless. They only signalled through flag uh, or semaphore um, or, or Morse code. And so, yeah, they would have regularly been taking orders from the flotilla commander who would have had the the Fetilas wireless, uh, and basically their job was to to follow the leader. So, yeah, in that sense, the, the task of getting down to D-Day was straightforward. They would have followed channels and followed their their navigating vessels that would have led them in the right direction. But nonetheless, with a crew of 12 men and a cargo of 10 tanks, Uh, who are relying on
0: you to get you to Normandy, that would be quite a daunting endeavour. You recently showed me some quite incredible photographs, which you managed to unearth during your extensive research, obviously, into LCT 7074's history. Um, I mean, there's quite an incredible story you've unearthed here. Can you tell us a little bit more about these and how you came across them and the incredible direct connection you've discovered that this naval craft has with one of the Third Reich's most famous tank aces, Michael Wittmann.
1: Yeah, it's been quite an interesting um, discovery. So it all comes down to uh, a nefarious identification number that was given to every landing craft for D-Day, and this is called the Landing Table Index Number. So, obviously, every landing craft has its pennant number, uh, 7074. But for D-Day, all of the infantry and vehicles that were going ashore needed to go ashore in a set order. Uh, So, obviously, most people are familiar with the the pattern of D-Day. First, the DD tanks go ashore and then the armored vehicle royal engineers, Hobart's funnies, then the infantry, and then follow-up tanks, and then more infantry. So to work out the order in which that happened, landing tables were drawn up. And to make sure that everyone landed in the right order, these landing tables all have individual numbers, hence the landing table index number. So basically, each... Uh, all of the units were organised into loads for their landing craft, and then those landing craft have to beach in the correct numerical order. So to make sure that everyone gets on the right landing craft at embarkation in the United Kingdom, those landing table index numbers were also assigned to the vessels. So once you get to your point of embarkation, all you have to do is look for the landing craft that has your landing table index number on it, this has the added benefit that if a landing craft that had been assigned a particular role broke down, then they didn't have to worry too much. They could just replace the landing craft and switch the landing table index number to that new landing craft. So the army would be none the wiser because they would just be looking for that code number, the landing table index number, displayed on the ship. So landing table index numbers... Uh, can be difficult to research because there is no master list of what landing craft carried what landing table index number. Um, But I was quite lucky during the early stages of my research to, to find a reference to 7074's landing number. And that then revealed a number of photographs of her on the beach. And from different angles, we were able to ascertain that this vessel with this landing table index number was definitely 7074. In some shots, you can see the pennant number, and in other shots, you can see the landing table index number. So, uh, knowing that landing table index number, it was a case really of trying to research vessel, uh, sorry, vehicles of the Seventh Armoured Division and their route through Normandy, and try and find a connection to those landing table index numbers. There was nothing in the war diaries to tell us which tanks had been assigned which landing table index numbers, which is a great shame. Those lists would have been produced, but we weren't able to find exactly who had used them. But we did strike gold by finding tanks with that landing table index number written on them uh, in Normandy. And less than a week after D Day, several of those tanks were in the town of villers bocage In particular, a Sherman tank, which had actually been converted into a mobile observation post belonging to Major Dennis Wells of the 5th Royal Horse Artillery. And very diligently, his tank crew, just like all of the other tank crews, had written in chalk their landing table index number on the front of the tank so that the hard party at the embarkation hard in the UK would know which landing craft those tanks are supposed to go on. And six days later, on the 13th of June, that chalk hadn't been washed off yet, and Dennis Wells, along with several other tanks, some of which had been on 7074, encountered Michael Whitman on the high street of Villers-Bocage,
2: and Dennis Wells' tank was knocked out uh, with a, a shell through the turret. And there are some very detailed pictures of his tank on the high street in
1: Villers Bocage. And when we came across those, we suddenly realized the significance of that location <laughs> and the, the fact that this tank was in Villers Bocage, photographed just after the battle. Um, and then going through the, the more detailed accounts of that battle, of course, as we already suspected, his tank had been knocked out by none other than Michael Whitman, uh, who had surprised the 7th Armored Division and advanced down the villers High Street, knocking out several vehicles, including some of those that had been on 7074. So that, that really was a, a fascinating, very exciting discovery to, to be able to place that connection, if you like, with 7074 into such a, a well-known battle from the Battle of Normandy.
0: Did Dennis Wells and his crew survive this encounter with Whitman?
1: Yes, Dennis Wells survived. He was injured and was repatriated to the UK. He then later went back over to France with a different uh, regiment of, uh, sorry, a different unit of the Royal Horse Artillery. Um, We know that one of the crew was killed in the action, and his name is now on the memorial to the missing in Bayer. But several of the other crews survived um, and they have left accounts
0: of their involvement in the action. And we've actually been able to get in touch with the descendants of some of those crew. Was LCT-7074 ever christened by its crew, like given a nickname or any artwork you could see from the photographs?
1: There's none that we've been able to identify and... There aren't that many accounts of landing craft receiving names. Now, in the Admiralty, they weren't entitled to receive a a full name, hence they only have a number, pennant number. Um, We do see on some landing craft, and particularly landing ships, the much larger vessels, uh, attempts at nicknames, um, but nothing very serious, and none appear to have been known Particularly formally, or you know, any uh, in any special way other than their pennant number. We do know that, of course, every landing craft was commissioned, and we know that 7074 was commissioned by uh, a Royal Navy elderly officer described as a sea dog called Commander Lewis, um, who was based up on the time. Um, But that commissioning is pretty much all that would have happened. Again, because it was such a rushed job, there was no time for the crew to build any sort of familiarity with their landing craft. And uh, yeah, as far as we know, and
0: from the photos that we have, there's there's nothing especially unique except uh, there are some Latin inscriptions uh, on the bridge, which we think might have been put there by the commander, John Baggett. Um I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll you'll see that when the landing craft opens to the public <laughs> next year. Keep us wanting more.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the photos you unearthed. Obviously, we t- we touched on those famous ones of the tanks at Villers-Bocage, but you also stumbled across some other very impressive photos of German POWs on board this LCT. Can you tell us a bit more about this and what happened? maybe even what happened to these men brought back on LCT 7074?
1: Yes, um, so those photos again came about because of the landing table index number. And once I had identified this landing table index number, it was actually Nick Hewitt, who's the Head of Collections at National Museum of Our Navy, who's project managing the uh, 7074 restoration project who made the connection between that landing table index number and the photographs, because he had seen these images before. And when I told him what 7074's landing table index number was, he went back and looked at those photos, and to his absolute delight, they, they show the same landing table index number. And once I knew which pictures they were, I was able to track down details about when those photographs were taken, and the photographer, and then find more from that beach taken at that same time, which is how we're able to confirm that that vessel definitely was 7074. Because as I said earlier, in some views, you can see the pennant number and in others, you can see the landing table index number. So those pictures have been crucial in confirming 7074's nefarious landing table index number. But yes, what's interesting is that it shows large numbers of German prisoners of war on the deck. There's a very brief account by the first officer who says there were about 200 Germans on the deck. And these are former defenders of Gold Beach. Uh, The photographer who took the picture, um, Sergeant Lewis of the Army Film and Photographic Unit, describes them as mostly um, Eastern European conscripts. And there were several Oost Battalions, uh, which were foreign labour impressed into the Wehrmacht, Uh, troops defending Gold Beach. And so these were almost certainly uh, units of the the defenders of Gold Beach who were captured on D-Day and were then being gathered up to be transported back to the UK. And originally, the beach party at Gold Beach had asked the crew of 7074 to take these men back to the UK. But the crew of 7074 pointed out they had no guard. Uh, They had very few weapons, and the Orlikans couldn't be trained on the tank deck. Um, And so instead, they were put aboard a landing ship tank and transported back to the UK. Um, It's possible that we may have uncovered more of their story, but I'm going to leave you hanging for that one (laughs) as well, because we haven't quite finished the research yet and when we do then there'll be more to say about it but
0: I'm still looking into it in a bit more detail it's possible that um, we can follow their journey even more uh, and track them back to where they ended up in the UK That'll be fascinating I look forward to hearing more about that in due course So Stephen what's been the biggest challenge you faced during this restoration project and I guess also what's been your biggest highlight from it?
1: Ooh My biggest highlight, I think, has been being the archaeologist on board. Now, before the ultra-high-pressure water jetting could be carried out, there was a long period where I was the only person visiting 7074 in the shipwalt, and I pretty much had the vessel to myself for several months. In fact, I was visiting as regularly as I could to record different aspects of the ship before the restoration began. And that was really very enjoyable, very special time just uh, to be on this ship all day, recording different elements of her, finding little details and working out her previous arrangements where patches have been, where portholes have been and establishing the chronology of her, her change and pretty much having the vessel to myself just for that short time was, was uh, a great highlight. Um, at the same time, making discoveries in the archives that have uh, added to her story has been a great highlight as well, identifying the landing table index number and what that led on to. The... Photographs of her on the beach, and then discovery of uh, Dennis Wells' tank and the connection with Michael Whitman. When I made that connection, it was—I uh, I won't deny—it it was very exciting. I enjoy research, <laughs> and so making a connection like that was uh, was absolutely great. Um, the biggest challenges? Ooh, I don't know. The whole project is is challenging. This is a very large vessel. Um, it's unique, and there's there's a lot still to learn. So for the entire team that's involved, this is a big challenge. Um, but I don't know what my personal biggest challenge has been, um, other than I suppose writing up all of the reports is quite a challenge because there's <laughs> so much information to try and put down um, and make it make sense. Uh, and yes, I admit I have struggled with writing the reports sometimes and um, I write everything down and then I go back and reread it and I think, oh crikey, this doesn't make any sense at all even though I know what I'm talking about so at the moment the archaeological report stands at uh, 17,500 words and the next version will be coming out next month um, and the word count's only going to increase <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> so, 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 so some light reading there
1: Yes, <laughs> very dry archaeological narrative that I try, and, I try and improve every once in a while with some, uh, some more interesting detail. Um, but yes, I suppose getting all of that down in a way that it will make sense for future archives, because one of the important things about restoration of a vessel is making sure that there is a comprehensive archive of, of everything that's been done to the vessel for future uh, custodians of it. Um, so it's, it's important to get this record correct, which means I've got to make sure it not only makes sense, but is completely accurate and details exactly what our understanding of the vessel has been from the archaeology and the historic records um, and why we took the steps we did in the, the various elements of the restoration. So that is quite a challenge in itself to get that right. and It's quite a responsibility because the hope is that this vessel is going to be around for a very, very long time, and future generations of people will be caring for her in a couple of decades' time. And so these documents that myself and others are producing to do with different elements of the restoration need to be able to provide that information to make sure that she can be cared for in the long term.
0: You mentioned, obviously, Nick Hewitt, part of the team. Uh, how big is the team out of interest?
1: Uh, well, there's several different elements of the team. It's obviously organised by National Museum of the Royal Navy. Uh, their partner is the Portsmouth City Council, because she will go on display outside the D-Day story on Portsmouth land. Um, the project managers are Telia UK, and the people who are carrying out most of the work are ML uh a uh, ship restoration company. Uh, and then there are numerous other teams and organizations involved in the interpretation and the fitting out of the vessel to make sure that she is authentic when she goes on display to the public. And then um, the D Day Story are working with local groups uh, around the country have connections with uh, 7074, so groups up in Newcastle area, groups in East Anglia, and groups in Portsmouth um, to uh, document her journey around the coast of England and the work that she did. So there's there's a big interpretation project behind this as well. And yeah, there's a a large number of people involved in, in making sure it works. And we hope that other organisations will also want to be able to contribute to the the final fit out of the vessel. And a lot of that is being organised by Petrichor, who have done a lot of work on historic ships in the past, uh, to make sure that she looks authentic, um, as well as having interpretive information on board, so modern... Uh, interactive screens um so that people
0: who visit her will not just be looking at an authentic landing craft but there will also be information at their fingertips to learn more about what she did you'll be talking down in portsmouth in october at the historic dockyard about obviously lct 7074 and the bigger picture of embarking for the d-day armada can you tell our listeners a little bit more how they could come and visit and obviously listen to these talks
1: Yes, um, happily. I'm giving two talks for the National Museum of the Royal Navy in October. The first on the 10th is uh, yeah, entitled Embarking the D Day Armada. And one of my other interests on D Day is, is the embarkation of troops and the archaeological legacy that's left us all around the country. So, one of the, the most obvious things, of course, is the embarkation halves that were built specifically around the UK. Uh, In the 19, uh, sorry, from 1942 to 1943 for the use of landing craft. Because landing craft are great for working on a beach, but they're no good in harbors or docks because the only way to get vehicles onto them is across that bow ramp. And if you put a landing craft up against a, a harbor wall, there's no easy way to get the tanks and men on. So specialist embarkation hards were built around the country and these have left us a very rich archaeological legacy of the final points of the uk where many people stood for the last time before they went onto their ships uh, and were then transported to normandy and it's not just the hards themselves it's a lot of the infrastructure in land road widening uh, and brand new roads in some instances. Uh, storage areas, parking places for tanks, passing places. You still see a lot of this around the South Coast today, and some of it is hiding in plain sight. Um, the reason some roads are wider than others is because they were specially widened for D Day. Those bus stops that you often see in a little uh, trapezoid on the side of the road was originally a passing place or a refuge area for tanks that are broken down so they could be pulled off the road uh, and wouldn't hold up traffic. And some of them, like bus stops, are are still actively used to this day. And there's a fascinating opportunity, I think, to research these sites and then investigate the archaeological legacy that they leave behind. So talk on uh, 10th of October is all about embarking the D-Day Armada what we can still learn about it and what there is to see. And then on 24th of October, I'm talking about landing craft and the evolution of the landing craft from its earliest days uh, right through to the end of the war. And, of course, it's important to remember that landing craft didn't just see service at D-Day, but they, they saw service in every theatre of war. And they came in all different types and shapes and sizes. And there's, there's more... Uh, stories to be told about them. And whilst
0: 7074 we're restoring a particular vessel, her story is indicative of all of the landing craft that served in the Second World War. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll expand a little bit about the different types of landing craft and some of the different stories they have. We can find out more about this on the Historic Dockyard website or check out the link in the podcast description below. So Stephen, you're also uh, potentially doing some guided walks of these embarkation points as well, aren't you? That's
1: right. So on the 27th of October, I'm leading a guided walk for the Council of British Archaeology uh, for the Wessex branch down at Leap Country Park in the New Forest. And that's a chance to have a look at Embarkation Hard Q2, which is where a lot of the tanks that landed on Gold Beach on D-Day sailed from. And there's also immediately adjacent to that embarkation hard, one of the construction areas for Phoenix caissons at Mulberry Harbour. So if anyone's interested in looking at some concrete and learning about how that concrete contributed to Dedo, then they're very welcome to join us. Just Google Council for British Archaeology Wessex and find their events page and book on to uh, New Light on Leap.
0: So thanks very much for joining us Stephen, I've really appreciated uh, you taking the time to do that, it's been absolutely enthralling Um I, mean, I can't wait to hear more about potentially what else you own on earth with the German POW story, I think that'll be fascinating to hear. Um, you have to keep us posted on that one.
1: Mm-hmm. Well thank you very much for having me, it's always a pleasure to talk about landing craft, it's one of my passions and yeah, um, 7074 is, is definitely worth talking about and learning about so yeah i'll be happy to update you as and when uh, more information comes to light